Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Today we're talking about an invention that had uh, you know, certainly been in the news a bit recently. Um, we're talking about walls. Okay. Now, we're not a political show, but uh, some of the statements on the nature of walls, the purpose of walls, the historical and modern effectiveness of walls uh, are unavoidable here. And, and hopefully, uh, this is all going to be useful. By the time we finish this episode, you're going to have uh, you know, a deeper context regarding the nature of walls and what a wall is uh, the next time you are uh, subjected to the news. Now, I noticed we've been on a tear recently of extremely ancient inventions. Mm-hmm. I think we did roads and then the wheel, and now we're on walls. It's almost like we're just going further and further back in time. <laughs> and so I'm sure we'll get back to some uh, some more recent or high-tech gadgets soon. Oh, yeah, but with, with ex- definite biographies involved, too. I mean, right. That's the thing about the more modern inventions. But I do really like doing this kind of thing we're doing by, like, uh, looking at the most basic technology that exist, like the wheel and the wall, because there are so many interesting ways to look at their, you know, their, their multi-millennial legacy and impact on human culture and history. Now, I'd say in addressing the wall, we are going to be talking a little bit about a few interesting tidbits of, uh, of physical construction, but this isn't going to be so much an episode about, like, uh, wall materials and all that. Yeah, obviously, that is a very rich subject on its own, but I think we're going to be thinking more about the role that walls play in geopolitical political history. Yeah, yeah, because certainly the history of walls is kind of the history of construction and engineering mm-hmm. uh, in a broader sense. Uh, and, and we have to be clear here, too, about how we're, we're looking at walls, because uh, there's, there's a very good chance that if you're listening to the show right now, you are either contained within walls <laughs> or perhaps adjacent to a wall. Okay. Um, <laughs> even if you're just driving down the road, um, uh-huh. you know, the, the, you're, you're, you can probably see some walls right now. Maybe you're forming part of a human wall. Maybe you're walking on top of a mile-high wall. Yeah, I, all these are possible. And, and you, you, any of us can build a crude wall out of sticks, dirt, rocks, etc., with only the most basic engineering skill. Yeah, and in a basic sense, I mean, it, this is something that exists in nature. I mean, why do we have the idea that certain types of animals and maybe some of our ancestors sought out caves for shelter? It's because they've got walls and a roof, right? <laughs> These like they limit the, uh, the they limit your exposure to the weather through a roof, especially, but they also limit the number of access points through which other animals say could reach you. Exactly. So we're largely going to talk about walls as barriers around cities and then more to the point as freestanding divisions. And in this, we really need to think of them, I, th- uh, I-, I believe, as a sort of, of geoengineering project. Uh, you know, it's easier to see this in walls that are created using elements from the natural surroundings, say a wooden fence or a beautiful moss-covered stone wall in mm-hmm. Ireland, you know, something that would, you know, really looks good on a calendar. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but it's less obvious when you behold something like, say, the Great Wall of China or the, the peace lines or peace walls of Ireland or the, the Berlin Wall, something of this nature. But a wall essentially seeks to do what the environment does naturally. Mm-hmm. It's a sheer vertical rise in elevation manufactured to impose a particular cultural, political, or personal domain. You know, you you can just imagine somebody, perhaps, you know, a far side cartoon, a caveman thinking, you know, I wish my property were on top of a mountain to keep my enemies away. Well, boom, here's how a wall works. Now you have a mountain uh, or something that functions like a mountain, creating a vertical obstacle between 
your stuff and somebody else's stuff. Uh huh. But there are multiple different ways to think about the idea of a wall as protection, and this will come out when we talk about the more macroscopic wall projects throughout history uh, as we go on, because there, there's one type of being protected in walls that's literally like I need a barrier to like keep people from coming in and stealing all my things, mm-hmm. or to keep I don't know a lion from coming and grabbing me while I'm asleep. Right. But on the other hand, you've also got the the type of protection that is the psychological sense of privacy, right? That a wall is a barrier that people can't see through that allows you to feel like you are not constantly being, say, observed by your neighbors. Oh, yeah, like a, like a privacy fence yeah. in one's backyard. We tend not to think of them as walls of wood. Uh-huh. I will erect walls of wood between me and my so-called neighbors. No, it's a privacy fence, you know, just in case you, you know, want to, you know, walk around shirtless in your backyard. Which you should. It's your backyard. Do what you want. <laughs> or you don't want people stealing your genius invention that you're building <laughs> back there. Exactly. So as stated earlier, prehistoric times before walls, they required humans to depend on naturally occurring bar- barriers, you know. Uh, where can one position themselves so that they're best protected from the elements, predators, enemies, etc.? And these could, these could be any number of things, right? In addition to uh, vertical changes in elevation, uh, they could be uh, uh, rivers, ponds, streams, swampy areas, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. And of course, early humans and Neanderthals were nomadic. Uh, there was nothing to be gained in the creation of heavy-duty barriers because you were always or at least cyclically on the move. You had no cities. You had no domesticated herds or crop fields that needed to be cut off from other aspects of the natural world. Um, there were also precious few of you to begin with. Uh, but of course, all of that changed. Cities gave rise to walls and city-states and empires uh, gave rise to even more walls of division between the ever-expanding, ever-advancing tribes of humanity. Right. You're correct to point out that the wall revolution, I mean, we, we don't know when the first wall was created. Right. But it would have to be linked to the idea, I would think, of a, of a sedentary lifestyle, like as uh, people stop moving around and settle in places to li- live in one place and stay there. And we do, in fact, see some of the earliest archaeological evidence of walls in the most ancient of the sort of city-states of the uh, the ancient Near East, for example. Like there are 10,000-year-old walls that have been discovered in the city of Jericho. Now, when it comes to what we were talking about, the more sort of uh, freestanding barrier walls mm-hmm. that might mark the border of a territory or, uh, you know, or something more like the Great Wall of China, which we'll discuss at more length as we go on, among the world's earliest known b- defensive barrier walls are the walls of ancient Mesopotamia, specifically uh, some walls constructed in the 21st century BCE by the Sumerian rulers Shulgi and Shusin. And these were constructed in the region that is modern-day Iraq uh, in order to defend the ancient civilization of Sumer against attacks of nomadic peoples known as the Amorites. And so this wall was also known as the Wall of the Land or the Amorite Wall. We think that it probably reached more than 100 miles in length, stretching between the twin rivers that uh, bound Mesopotamia, as that would be the Tigris and the Euphrates. And while this wall was probably meant to protect Sumerian cities, it was not, as we said, a city wall. It's kind of a border wall. Uh, I found one piece of ancient Sumerian poetry, in fact, that seems to be referring to the wall, or at least to a fictional analog of it. And it's translated and explained in a book called Reading Sumerian Poetry by the scholar Jeremy Black. And in this ancient Sumerian poem, you've got the legendary Sumerian king 
Inmerkar, and he's out with his army at war laying siege to a foreign city, and he gets all demoralized feeling. He's not having a good time. And he arranges to send a message back to the mighty goddess Inanna, one of our favorites from oh, yeah. Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, she, you know, she shrieks power through the rebel lands. And he's out at war while Inanna is residing back in her temple in the city of Unug, a Sumerian city also known as Uruk. And so Inmarkar's message implies that, you know, once with Inanna's help, his reign had been really great. It was great and glorious, and he built powerful, impressive structures. But now things have gone bad, and he feels abandoned by the goddess Inanna while she sits at home, refusing to come to his aid to help him accomplish glorious things again. And this is Black's translation of the, the this passage from the poem. The wall of Unug extended out over the desert like a bird net. But here and now my attractiveness to her has ended. My army hangs on me as a cow hangs on its calf. Like a son who, hating his mother, leaves his city. My princely sister, Holy Inanna, has run away from me to brick-built Kulaba. So that first line there, that line, the wall of Unug extended out over the desert like a bird net. Uh, I love that image, and Black writes that this metaphor actually does refer to a real technology. Quote, a long net of a type used for snaring low-flying birds extending out across the open country. Hmm. Though I do find it interesting that here the metaphor for the wall is an animal trap, not a defensive structure. Yeah, something to snare, and uh, I guess it makes it fit maybe metaphorically more imposing. Like this is a thing in which – upon which you die as opposed to this is a thing that stands between the two of us. Yeah, though it's funny because the wall as invoked in the poem is not so much invoked as a literal defensive measure that is effective at its purpose. Instead, it's invoked as an emblem of the city of Unug's former power and prosperity. Mm. This is a fictional account being told in this poem. Uh, the historical context when the poem was being read probably meant to call to mind more uh, like the more recent and real construction of that defensive wall I mentioned earlier, the walls built by the kings Shulgi and Shusin, known as we mentioned earlier as the Wall of the Land and also as the Keeper at Bay of the Nomads. That's a good title, nice and formal. Uh, and that, that's, that's kind of a recurring theme in these older walls. It's a way of keeping out uh, the nomadic peoples. But no matter how much the author of this poem thought of this wall as this great building accomplishment, you know, that symbolizes the glory and splendor of Inmarkar's former rule, ultimately the real wall failed to protect Sumer and the, the Sumerian civilization, it fell to attacks from multiple enemies, the Amorites and the Elamites. The wall didn't work. All right. On that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the Great Wall of China. Okay, we're back. Now, on the subject of city walls, uh, kind of the the initial precursor to these dominion walls, um, to really drive home the importance of walls here, uh, the interconnectedness between walls and and and, and cities, uh, consider that the Mandarin Chinese word for wall, uh, Qing, is also the word for city. Huh. So, uh, Qing Shi. Uh, more specifically means town and the Great Wall of China, which we're uh, about to get into here, is uh, uh, Changqing. And they, uh, the, the Chinese also had a, uh, a god of walls and moats. 
Uh, let's not forget that moats are very much in the same uh, geoengineering vein here, right? right? Along yeah. with things like trenches and ditches. Yeah, if a wall is a fake mountain, a moat is a fake river. Exactly. To make a kind of <laughs> obvious <laughs> observation, sorry. So the name of this god was uh, Xing Wang. And uh, it's it's a bit complex, but the god, this city god is sort of a representative spirit, a protective deity that looks after the city. But it also encompasses deified, deceased city leaders that protect the city via the spirit realm. Mm -hmm. And they also represent the residents of the city in dealings with the king of the dead. So if the king of the dead comes for residents of, of the city, he's like the immediate contact, that sort of thing. Is there a reason for that? Do you know why him? Well, it, it gets kind of – there's kind of a complicated history there because it, uh, it, it, with several phases to it. On one hand, there's this idea of like veneration of an individual that was important to the people uh, during – uh, their life, mm -hmm. and then it makes sense that their their spirit would sort of hang around and be important after death. Part of the whole veneration of ancestors, uh, but then also it, this ends up being uh, uh, emphasized at different points uh, by, uh, by by China by Chinese rule as well. Okay. Now, along these lines, in Chinese traditions, there's more to a wall than mere physical construction. Uh, a wall is also kind of a spell that keeps out evil forces uh, in addition to, say, you know, uh, invaders, physical invaders, nomads, so northern barbarians. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the Great Wall. Okay. So the original wall was built uh, more than 2,000 years ago. Uh, during the, the, the Qin dynasty, uh, led by uh, Emperor uh, Qin Shi Huang, who stuff to blow your mind listeners may remember. We've, we devoted an entire episode uh, to, to, to his life and his tomb, his undisturbed tomb. Yeah, which has been legendarily appointed with many fine booby traps, which we, we very much hope are real, but <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, possibly rivers of lead, I believe. Uh, or of mercury. Mercury, it was yeah. mercury, yes. So uh, anyway, he was he was an imposing uh, figure. He united the seven warring kingdoms, and uh, there were these separate walls built by independent kingdoms that uh, he then had linked together to protect against those marauders, those northern barbarians. And the oldest parts of this wall system seem to date back to the seventh century BCE. Mm -hmm. Now. Hundreds of thousands of workers uh, you know, spent 10 years uh, uh, working on this. We're talking prisoners, political enemies, peasants, uh, and then various dynasties uh, would go on to work on it some more. But it wasn't until the rise of the Ming dynasty in 1368 uh, that the Great Wall of China, as we know it today, really was brought to full fruition. So how great is this wall? Well, its uh, reported length is uh, widely disputed and ranges anywhere from uh, uh, 1,500 miles or 2,414 kilometers to uh, 4,163 miles or 6,700 kilometers. Uh, you know, essentially uh, the idea here is it can go from – it can stretch from the Gobi Desert to the Yellow Sea. But it uh, it came about in installments. Right, yeah. So it, it wasn't just – one day, a great emperor decided to build the wall. They were like, look, we have all these these existing walls. Let's stitch these together. And also, let's reinforce areas. So there were areas that they didn't you know, only add length to it. They added double and triple walls in some places to reinforce what was already there. Um, and, uh, and and that's why in some areas you have a wall that is thick enough to drive a car atop if 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 you wanted to and had permission to do so. Obviously, uh, how do you get permission for that? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a there's a whole system you have to go through, Joe. I bet they're stingy with those permissions. I, I imagine they are. 
Now, I think most people know this anti-factoid at this point, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, as we've discussed on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before, that that old trope that you can see the Great Wall of China from space, not true. Yeah, not true. I mean, it's still very impressive. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it, it, it is not uh, visible from space. There are plenty of things that humans have made that are visible from space, but uh, the Great Wall of China is not really one of them. Now, I was looking at one interesting study about ancient Chinese construction methods, specifically with, with walls in ancient China. And this is that many of them were built with a powerful mortaring material that was made with the secret ingredient of sticky rice. Oh. Have you read about this? No, I'm not familiar with this one. So I first came across this because our friend and colleague Scott Benjamin linked us to a piece on it. Uh, But I was uh, was reading about this a little deeper. And so basically here's the deal. So you've got mortar, right? Mm -hmm. Mortar. It's the building material that you use to help bond stones or bricks or other hard elements together into a structure. And mortar goes way back. You use a paste like this. Even It was used in the pyramids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, a common mortar used throughout history is lime or slaked lime. Uh, And slaked lime is limestone that has been heated to a high temperature and hydrated with water. But about 1,500 years ago, it seems that construction engineers in ancient China discovered a way to make this powerful and resilient composite inorganic organic mortar by mixing slaked lime with soup or porridge based on sticky rice. And together, the slaked lime and the sticky rice soup make a mortar that is much stronger than other known technologies. So there was a study about this in 2010 by Fu Wei Yang. Bingzhan, Zhang, and Qinglin Ma. And it was called Study of Sticky Rice, Lime, Mortar Technology for the Restoration of Historical Masonry Construction in Accounts of Chemical Research in 2010. And the research identified the uh, most important ingredient as a polysaccharide known as amylopectin, which is an element of starch, which is, of course, found in rice, but is also in all kinds of starchy foods like potatoes and corn and stuff. And the authors write that when they tested the sticky rice-based mortar against more traditional lime-only mortars, the sticky rice-based one, quote, has more stable physical properties, has greater mechanical strength, and is more compatible, which makes it a suitable restoration mortar for ancient masonry. Um, So they suggest we could even use this today if we're, like, restoring ancient buildings that need their bricks stuck together better. Interesting. I mean, I, I hate to waste good good sticky rice yeah. uh, in, in, in building a structure, but uh, but it sounds convincing. Well, this wouldn't be the only case, actually, where food crop-based starches have proven useful as a non-food adhesive. Uh, apparently, potato starch makes a popular kind of wallpaper paste. Have you ever huh. read about this? No, I don't think I have. I looked it up. They're like recipes online for, for making your own wallpaper paste out of taters. Interesting. I mean, I guess – uh, now, it, it makes sense here as well because I have learned from uh, the Fallout games that if you have vegetable starch, you can turn that into adhesive at a workstation. So, oh, really? Yeah. So, um, so, so uh, it, it lines out with, up with the, the, the Fallout technology trees. I never knew those games are so educational. Yeah, there you go. But that is a great kind of ingenuity. Like you take the thing, you say, well, we eat this for breakfast, but what if we also used it to hold bricks together? Yeah, yeah. Like it's sticky in my mouth. Bet we could uh, we could use this if we had to in constructing a wall. Now, following the Manchu invasion of the uh, 1700s, the Great Wall of China was largely abandoned as a military priority. Uh, what's more, uh, Mao Zedong um, uh, he he ended up encouraging the Chinese people to use bricks and other parts of the wall for building projects. Uh, so, a large portion of the wall. Uh, was uh, essentially vanished during all that as well. But 
Ultimately, the big question here that that one might ask is, did the Great Wall of China work? Right. Did it like uh, repel invaders from the north? Right. And there's a there's a you know there's a lot of fascinating history and discussion on this topic. Uh, I will point out that there's an excellent article in uh, National Geographic called the, the Great Wall of China's Long Legacy by Borgia Pelagero uh, Alcade. And uh, uh, it's, I'll try and link to it on the landing page for this episode, but it's well worth checking out. It really goes uh, goes uh, in deep, but uh, but in a very readable, digestible uh, manner. Mm-hmm. So the the most specific threat that the wall was dealing with were again the northern barbarians, uh, the nomadic peoples, uh, uh, you know, from uh, from Mongolia and um, and so forth. And uh, it was never the only protection in place. It's always important to note with walls. Like it's easy to just have that stark image of the wall in your mind as this this tremendous uh, human geoengineering project. I have made a mountain and none shall cross. But generally, there's other stuff going on with a wall, mm-hmm. be it just a military or uh, – and certainly there was the, – the, the Chinese did have military forces. But there were also economic policies uh, under various rulers to keep the uh, the northern people in check. Economic um, policies, what could that amount to? Ransom basically? Essentially, yes. Like bribing. <laughs> economic stimulus, uh, et cetera. Um, <laughs> making payments and saying, hey, here's here. You don't want to come and invade us. Just here, take some, some of this. Mm-hmm. But uh, this only worked for so long. And then uh, Genghis Khan led the Mongol invasion in 1211, captured the capital, and in 1215, his son Kublai Khan conquered all of China and founded uh, the Yuan dynasty. And uh, ultimately, the Khan rule lasted less than a century, and following a peasant uprising, the Ming dynasty, again, uh, uh, took power in 1368. And again, this is where the wall as we know it really came together. Uh, uh, according to that National Geographic uh, uh, article, you know they they were employing uh, economic means as well, um, foreign aid to keep the barbarians at bay. But this didn't work perfectly. Border attacks continued until uh, 1571, when trading posts were built on the border, which apparently helped ease tensions. Uh-huh. But again, this is kind of a uh, an economic solution. Uh, that is working alongside all of this wall building that's going on at the time. Now, this ongoing Mongol conflict uh, weakened the Ming dynasty and it fell to another peasant uprising. And then under the uh, the Qing dynasty, China's northern border expanded well beyond the wall, making it even more unnecessary. Mm-hmm. But though it remained a, a symbol of cultural pride, but a relic of the past at the same time. So I feel like the, the Great Wall of China, beside, besides being one of the most iconic examples of a, you know, a freestanding uh, dominion wall uh, in, in human history, it, it also has some, some potential lessons about the limitations of walls, the life cycle of walls, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just the, again, the nature of walls not uh, working in isolation. Uh, because obviously, any wall, there are, there are numerous ways to get under it, to go over it, to go through it, mm-hmm. uh, etc. Uh, there have to be other things in place with it. Absolutely. But then, you know, another interesting thing to think about when we consider historical walls, uh, barrier walls of this type, is to think about um, – do we always just accept the assumed stated purpose that that were given for why they were built? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can assume that probably it was a major reason that the the um, Great Wall of China was built. That you know, you want they wanted to keep out invaders from the north, 
uh, to prevent raids and attacks mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But there can be other things to consider as well. And I want to uh, and I want to bring up the idea of Hadrian's Wall to take another look at this. All right. Well, let's take a quick break first, and then we'll come right back with Hadrian's Wall. All right, we're back. So another famous defensive barrier wall in history is known as Hadrian's Wall. Around the year 122 CE, the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who ruled from 117 to 138, commissioned the construction of a giant wall from shore to shore in what is today northern England, supposedly to protect the inhabitants of Roman Britain from tribes in northern Britain, which is present-day Scotland, such as the Picts. And this was a big project. I mean, we are talking about going from from sea to sea. It was a military construction project taking about 15,000 soldiers to build. And Hadrian's Wall remains today the longest stone wall in Europe, stretching about 117 kilometers or 73 miles. And the way it goes from shore to shore, it's not hard to see this as the historical inspiration for the wall in Game of Thrones. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I think that's pretty explicit, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, that that Martin, George R. R. Martin has has mentioned this as the inspiration. Yeah, he's 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 come out and said the White Walkers are Scots, just <laughs> straight up. No, he hasn't said that, but but yeah, it's like clearly the the the, the Westeros uh, um, uh, wall, the ice, the wall of ice goes mm-hmm. from sea to sea, uh, just like Hadrian's. Now, unlike in uh, the fantasy books, this is not a giant, you know, thousand foot tall wall made <laughs> of ice. This wall was about fifteen feet tall, or about four point five meters. Well, actually, I think it was different heights at different areas, but uh, generally about fifteen feet tall. And it took about six years to complete building, and it remained in some phase of use more or less until the end of Roman power in Britain, which was in the early 5th century. Uh, Though some parts of the wall remain in place, a lot of it has fallen into disrepair and, much like the Great Wall of China, has been plundered over the centuries for building materials. Yeah, because here you have just a wonderful collection of bricks (laughs) or whatnot. Uh, It it would it would just be irresistible to loot it a little bit. I mean, we see that with other constructions throughout history. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about the example of the Rosetta Stone, mm-hmm. uh, the the, uh, uh, the tablet that it was, was so instructive in understanding ancient Egyptian. It was found not in its original uh, uh, location, but uh, reused in, in building another structure. Well, it's like palimpsests, you know, mm-hmm. reusing priceless literary artifacts of the ancient world to write other stuff on. Yeah, or the, the, you don't like what's on the canvas, paint over it. I'm hoping that the end of Game of Thrones involves a lot of like steady looting of the ice wall for uh-huh. use in cocktails uh, among <laughs> the northern peoples, you know. I thought you were going to say for use in igloos. Well, igloos too. I guess that would be more practical. Igloos and cocktails. Uh, so there there are some really differing historical interpretations about why Hadrian's Wall was actually built, uh, like what purpose it served and whether it was effective and to what extent. Uh, in the words of Hadrian's biographer, the purpose of the wall was to, quote, separate the Romans from the barbarians. <laughs> I guess that's pretty clear. Uh, So they've got a Caledonia up above the wall and they think, oh, those are the barbarians. We got to cut ourselves off from them. But modern historians differ about how effective it would be, what it was really meant for and all that. As a true military defensive wall, I think it's clear that it would serve some purpose, but that it would not be a totally effective barrier. And in fact, it wasn't. There there were times when it failed to stop, say, picked raids in an area even after the wall had been constructed. 
But it, w- it would serve some kind of military purpose. Like the wall would help uh, help you hold a border area from advancing raiding parties or armies with fewer numbers of troops than would be required without a wall. So you wouldn't have to um, like send out a military response to absolutely every uh, uh, you know teeny raid that's uh, going on. Like every time somebody throws a rock at your border. Right. But at the same time, a, a lot of modern historians seem to – doubt the idea that the wall was purely or even primarily for like military defensive purposes. And they kind of de-emphasize this as the motivation for building it or as the the actual function of it once it was built. And if these doubters are correct, what could the purpose of the wall be? One common explanation I came across is that the wall is not a defensive structure as much as a way of controlling traffic, essentially Mm -hmm. to route travelers and traders through military-controlled gates where taxes, customs, and tolls could be extracted, which would make it essentially a fundraising operation. (laughs) And and, well, no, no, really. And this is, is, I think, a very plausible way of explaining things. Uh, This hypothesis is often supported by reference to the placement and design of the many big gates of the wall and the archaeological record of trade and goods on either side. It looks like there was a lot of economic commerce going back and forth across the wall and the empire would have wanted a way to make money off of that. Another explanation I've come across is that it was essentially a giant make work project. (laughs) (laughs) So like imagine you've got a big army, you're Hadrian, Mm -hmm. and you've sent an army north uh, to try to conquer all of Great Britain or what what is now Great Britain. Uh, And they essentially failed. They didn't conquer all of Caledonia. They couldn't get up into the highlands. Um, So you've got an army after a failed campaign hanging around down in what is now England in Roman Britain. And it's generally, I think, a bad idea in ancient Rome to have thousands of military men sitting around bored at an imperial frontier. (laughs) Uh, So perhaps one explanation is that it was just sort of a boondoggle to keep the legionaries of of Roman Britain busy. Though this last hypothesis is considered unlikely by some, for example, the author I'm about to cite. So there's an article about Hadrian's Wall and a smaller, more northern situated wall known as the uh, Antonine Wall in the in a 2017 edition of Current Archaeology by the author and current archaeology editor Matthew Simons, who uh, has recently written a book for Cambridge University Press about Roman efforts to protect the borders and frontiers of their empire. And Simons points out a few things about Hadrian's Wall. One of them is that we might be thinking about the function of a wall in a way that is colored by modern understandings of nation states and borders. Usually, though not always, but usually today if somebody puts up a barrier wall around a territory, they're trying to control an existing agreed-upon border. So the idea being like uh, one nation has drawn a line in the sand and said, hey, this is the border, and then – and then there's a sense, oh, well, maybe you're not respecting that border. Now I'm going to build a wall on that line in the sand. So now it's 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 even it's even more clear, and you can't get over it. Exactly. But maybe in Roman times, the purpose of a border wall is not so much to reinforce a clear and agreed upon existing border, but to create one, mm. right? To sort of mark off territory as clearly yours. And Simons writes that you know the Romans controlled the southern part of Great Britain, but they could not fully conquer the northern part. That's now. Scotland due to strain on military resources. So in order to cement control and establish a border, 
maybe they built a wall, essentially as a way of saying, here we are, which would have uh, been at least as important as a symbol as it was as a practical barrier to, like, prevent incursions. This brings me back to the idea of of, uh, walls and Chinese traditions as being not only physical structures but a kind of spell. Yes. You know, because a symbol is a powerful thing. It it communicates – uh, an idea. And a wall, of course, has two sides. It can communicate uh, one message in one direction and another in the other direction. Uh, one for those beyond the wall and uh, another message for those within. Exactly. And so I was reading another article uh, where speaking to NPR, there w- is a woman named uh, Linda Tutiet who was the chief executive of the Hadrian's Wall Trust. And she says that there's Quote, quite strong evidence that the wall was painted white in Roman times. So as you can imagine, that would have been visible from miles and miles and miles away. So it's it's there – in this idea, it's there as like a symbol, a beacon, a thing for people to see and be reminded that this is Rome. Right, because they, they – especially to the north, uh, they do not have a, a map, I'm guessing. They they can't just, uh, you know, pull up a map on their smartphone or out of their glove compartment and say, oh, yeah, this is where the, the Roman territory begins. But making a, a, a highly visible white wall like that is like making it – is, it is making uh, the, 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 the demarcation on the map physical mm-hmm. in a way that yeah, you can see – uh, uh, miles ahead. Yeah, exactly. So it's meant to stand out visually for psychological impact. And to bolster that, also I, I mentioned the idea of the Antonine Wall, the wall that's not as not as big as Hadrian's Wall, but it's mm-hmm. a little bit north of it. I was reading an article from last year about the research of an archaeologist named Louisa Campbell from the University of Glasgow and some colleagues of hers uh, who have found that the wall was also brightly painted in its time with yellow and red paints and decorated with all these bits of propagandistic sculpture to show the power of Rome and like there was a lot of emphasis on the use of red paint to show like power and bloodiness. So that would, again, this applies to the Antonine Wall but would make it very much like a symbol, a signaling mechanism. Hmm. Now, I don't know which of these hypotheses is correct. Obviously, I'm not a historian of Roman Britain but – All of them seem at least somewhat plausible to me, like the idea that, okay, it did serve some military purpose in a defensive sense, but it also or alternatively may have uh, served mainly like a fundraising traffic controlling function to Mm -hmm. get traders into one place where you could tax them or that it was just a big make work project or that it was mainly about symbolism. And as you mentioned a minute ago, the, the symbolism could wouldn't just be going one way, right? Like symbolism could be aimed at the people within your territory of control as well. Right. Yeah. This is the this is the place where our our rule extends to, mm-hmm. and uh, and you are safe within these these walls. Yeah. Like there there there's definitely a lot of writing about historical walls. Especially, I know I've read one medieval historian talking about city walls in this context being about a sense of security versus mm-hmm. necessarily like truly fully effective security because what you know what do you need to happen in a city you want there to be commerce you want people coming in doing business trading you know that to, to help make the city rich and so a way to do that is to try to create a psychological effect an impression on people that this is a safe place to do business and a wall could help do that yeah and the idea that yes the gates are open but we have control over the gates. Uh, this this place is closed off and yet open uh, to whatever degree uh, we need it to be. Yeah, and again, so I don't feel qualified to adjudicate which of these historical interpretations for Hadrian's Wall in particular is correct, like which is which was the 
the real main purpose of the construction. But I do think it's clear that very often barrier walls all throughout history are presented as simple and intended function. But in fact, they're complex and they may serve many purposes other than the explicitly announced one, often symbolic or psychological purposes. Right. And and whatever and, – and even if they don't have the, the symbolism in mind, like overtly in mind uh, when they are designed and built, they'll often take on this uh, symbolic power as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I can't help but think of uh, some of the more modern examples of walls, you know, stuff that we can we can relate to with our uh, th- through modern culture. Uh, for instance, the Berlin Wall being a, yeah. a primary example of that. Well, yeah, I mean, think of the power of like, how come the fall of of Soviet or communist rule in Europe is is put into a single image in the crushing and destruction of the Berlin Wall, you know, the, that one day. Uh, this, this was clearly such a powerful image for people, and it's all there on that one wall. Oh, yes, plus all those wonderful uh, images of, of the, this in, intense uh, uh, graffiti creativity mm-hmm. that went uh, into the one side of the wall versus uh, uh, the, the starkness uh, that, that one encountered on the other. Mm-hmm. And it does feel that it was, it was largely uh, created uh, to, with that symbolic power in mind, though. The idea yeah. – uh, I mean, not the, the um, you know, artistic flourishes that were added. Uh, to one side, but just the idea that here is a thing to represent the division. Here is a thing to um, to drive home the division while also functionally separating peoples. But then, of course, we shouldn't forget that this wall was quite literally, I think, meant to be effective at preventing transit, at least yes. especially one way. Oh, yes. Like, it definitely had a, had a functional purpose. I mean, it was manned and guarded with lethal force. Yes. Speaking of which, uh, another um, um, barrier that comes to mind is the Korean Demilitarized Zone or the DMZ, uh, which um, uh, of course uh, snakes across the width of the Korean Peninsula, creating this uh, 160 mile long, two and a half mile wide buffer zone between North and South Korea. Mm-hmm. Another barrier uh, border that is uh, f- frequently in the news. Another uh, another one that often comes up is the West Bank barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this one uh, uh, currently runs along the 1949 Armistice Agreement line or the Green Line that separates uh, Israel from the territories of the West Bank. And another one that is uh, uh, I've seen making the news recently uh, is uh, are the uh, peace lines or the peace walls. Uh, these are separation barriers built in Northern Ireland to separate Catholic and Protestant neighborhoods uh, intended to minim- minimize violence between the two groups, especially during the Troubles from 1960 to 1998. Uh, but they're they're still standing. Uh, and you'll see them mostly in Belfast, uh, but there, of course, is um, in um, on the subject of, of Brexit. There has been a lot of concern over this because currently you have a what a soft uh, border between uh, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. and uh, if, uh, if in the case of a what a hard Brexit, uh, you have the, the potential for that to be a hard uh, border again. Um, you know, not necessarily a a wall in the strictest sense of the words, but uh, when we're talking about like the channeling of commerce mm-hmm. and the controlling of commerce and the uh, uh, and, and so forth, uh, it is uh, it is essentially the uh, the wall in everything but form. And that sounds like a nasty echo of the past. Yeah, and but uh, you know, certainly speaking to to walls like the peace walls that that still stand, you know, like they are a constant reminder of what has come before. And what you know to some extent still resonates within the culture, and what could come again. Um, you know, I mean, walls are potent reminders, potent symbols of division. Yeah, uh, and very often, 
perceived to be symbols of oppression. Yeah. I mean, certainly that's the case if one is trapped within walls. If you were within the walls of a prison cell or a prison ground, um, you, know, you, you can feel the force of those walls. And likewise, it's communicating something else to the people on the outside, right? Yeah. Saying uh, those that we have uh, uh, deemed appropriate to incarcerate are, uh, are safely uh, set aside from you. They are, they are walled off within this prison. Again, back to the symbolic and psychological power that these uh, barriers so often serve. So we only mentioned a few walls. Obviously, there are a, there are a number of other uh, historic walls of note, a uh, number of other walls that are currently uh, used uh, in today's world. Um, I, I, I hope coming out of this episode and sort of trying to deconstruct what a wall is and what it does and, and what it doesn't do, what it depends on all these other things for, uh, that it will, you know, force us to maybe, you know, Think twice, think three times uh, if we need to. Uh, the, the next time any of these barriers comes up uh, uh, in conversation, in the news cycle, uh, certainly we can uh, think about the nature of walls uh, in discussions of proposed future walls. Um, uh, again, the wall is something that is so universal, it is easy to just not think about it, to not think about what it is and what it is supposed to do. A wall is something that's so simple in form, it, it almost asks to be taken very much at face value. But given what we know about history, we, it, we should do exactly the opposite. I mean, you shouldn't just take it at face value. It's actually a, this almost kind of magical, talismanic kind of thing. Yeah, really coming back around to the idea of a, of a wall as a kind of magical spell. You know, we mentioned Game of Thrones, but we really didn't get into fictional walls much at all. But uh, when we look to literature, uh, films, music, mm -hmm. uh, there the walls pop up quite frequently. I mean, one key example being uh, Pink Floyd's uh, uh, treatment of the wall. You can tell a lot about a person by what Pink Floyd they like best. Do they like the like dark, screaming, uh, depressing, like the wall and uh, and animals kind of Pink Floyd? Mm -hmm. Or do they like the classic rock radio, Dark Side of the Moon kind of Pink Floyd? Or do they like the psychedelic freakout, Astronomy Domine kind of Pink Floyd? <laughs> That's like – that's basically the three kinds of humans. No, it's not. That's right. There would have to be at least a fourth category for people who don't like Pink Floyd. Yeah. And maybe there's another category for people who just like the the song The Warrior. Uh, what, shooting at the walls of heart, heartache? Yeah, shooting out. Yeah. That, bang, bang. You know what? That is my favorite The Wall song. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, now it is time for us to stop uh, as well. Uh, obviously, we would love to hear from everybody out there uh, your experience with, with walls, some of your favorite examples from history and, and modern times, uh, your favorite examples from, uh, from film and literature and, and music. Uh, all of that is fair game. Uh, you can find us online. The mothership for this uh, particular podcast is uh, inventionpod.com. Uh, that's where you'll find all the episodes of the show that we've put out so far, as well as uh, a few links out to social media. And uh, if you if you want to support the show, uh, I would say the best thing you can do is to rate and review Invention wherever you have the power to do so, and make sure that you've subscribed. Big thanks to Scott Benjamin for research assistance on this episode and to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode, with suggestions for future topics, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. 